If you'd like to hear this show without ads, there's an ad-free RSS feed available for my Patreon supporters. Go to patreon.com slash seanmunger, and if you become a patron, I'll let you know how to get the ad-free feed of Second Decade in your podcatcher of choice. And it'd be great to have the support. The Kingdom of Norway is a free, independent, indivisible, and inalienable realm. Its form of government is a limited and hereditary monarchy. All inhabitants of the realm shall have the right to free exercise of their religion. The Evangelical Lutheran religion shall remain the official religion of the state. The inhabitants professing it are bound to bring up their children in the same. The executive power is vested in the king, or in the queen if she has succeeded to the crown king shall at all times profess the evangelical Lutheran religion and uphold and protect the same. As soon as the king, being of age, accedes to the government, he shall take the following oath before the stewarding. I promise and swear that I will govern the kingdom of Norway in accordance with its constitution and laws, so help me God, the Almighty, and Omniscient. The Constitution of Norway, promulgated May 17, 1814. Two hundred and ten years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was the time when our modern world began to emerge, and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 51, Norway, Part 2 In September 2009, in Norway, I had a small encounter with the subject matter of this episode, without knowing it at the time. This was seven years before I even got the idea to do this podcast. It's not often that I tell stories from my own life on this show. I believe the last time I did so was in episode 42, when I talked about my experience as a young kid seeing the amazing funeral treasures of Tutankhamun. So indulge me for a moment. We'll return to the 18-teens soon enough. I visited Norway that year, 2009, to see my best friend and several of my other friends who are Norwegians. Never mind how I met them, it's a long story. I'd never been to Norway before, and I was immediately impressed with how clean, nice-looking, well-ordered, and generally friendly the place was. Norway is full of trees, mountains, and glassy water. The houses are cozy with tile stoves and lots of blonde wood. I've slept more soundly in Norway than I have in any other foreign country. It just feels comfortable and inviting. On our first afternoon in Oslo, my friends took me down the main drag of the city, a wide avenue lined with neat shops and Norwegian flags. 
that starts at the Parliament Building and ends at Norway's Royal Palace. I took a bunch of pictures of a bronze statue of a man on a horse standing in front of the palace. There was an inscription on the base of the statue. I couldn't read it, of course. From here, we walked down to the waterfront. One of the main features of the Oslo Harbor is the anchor of the German ship Blücher, which was sunk in the harbor on the first day of the Nazi invasion of Norway, April 9, 1940. This is right near a peace memorial featuring a figure of a praying monk and an eternal flame. It's not far from the hall where the Nobel Peace Prize is given out. When we got back to my friend's house, we had dinner with his family, a wonderful meal of steak, cheese, and red wine, a very nice cabernet, if I recall correctly. We talked a bit about the history of Norway at the dinner table. Invariably, stories from the Nazi occupation of Norway during World War II came up. Norway suffered terribly under the Nazis. One of my friends talked about the experience of his grandfather. His grandfather didn't remember battles or anything like that, What people remembered was that there were shortages of food and firewood. People grew vegetables in city parks and traded for gasoline and chocolate on the black market. Tens of thousands of Norwegians served in the resistance. Many died. We'd already seen several memorials to them earlier that day. Though it ended in 1945, the Nazi occupation of Norway was not ancient history. It happened yesterday. It was there at that dinner table. Here were people who cherished freedom and peace because they had recent collective memories about what it was like to lose both. As a privileged American growing up in a country that has never suffered under the kind of tyranny the Norwegians lived through, I realized how limited my life and historical experience really was. It's been a while since I looked at the photos of my Norway trip. They're stored on an external hard drive I don't often use. Recently, in fact, since the first episode of this two-part series went live, I connected the drive and took a look. I was surprised at the connections I saw to the material I'd been covering in part one. The long street we walked down from the palace to the parliament was Karl Johansgata, named for Charles John, the character I refer to as Prince Jean Bernadotte throughout the last episode. In fact, he was the person modeled in that bronze statue I got several pictures of. The inscription under it reads, Folkets Charlicat Min Belloning, which translates to, The love of the people is my reward, apparently a quote from Bernadotte. To be sure, that statue was put up in 1875, when Norway and Sweden were still united under the same king, who at that time was Bernadotte's grandson. Bernadotte himself died in 1844. The way I've been telling it, Bernadotte is something of the villain of this piece. Where we left off at the end of episode 50, it was Bernadotte, then the King of Sweden, who Crown Prince Christian Frederick's nascent revolution of 1814 was trying to break away from. Yet that same Jean Bernadotte, Charles John or Karl Johan, quite popular in his lifetime even in Norway, has a great deal to do, in a positive sense, with Norway's modern heritage and its life as an independent nation. The punchline of this story, to the extent there is one, is that the founding of Norway was and is a complicated business. It has a lot to do with politics, heritage, identity, culture, language, religion, and a whole lot of other stuff. I can't hope to be comprehensive in two short episodes of my rather insignificant podcast. But there is a story here worth telling, and I think it's one of the most interesting stories of the second decade. So let's return to that story now. It's February 1814. 
the bigwigs of Norway have just met at Karsten Anker's estate at Eidsvoll, the famous meeting of notables. There's a concrete plan afoot for Norwegian independence. Will they make it stick? Let's find out in the second part of this series, Norway, Part 2. Good evening. Just a couple of quick announcements before we get into the subject of tonight's show. I'd like to recommend a fellow historian's podcast. Nathaniel Lloyd curates the excellent Historical Blindness podcast, which I've listened to for a long time. The show deals with historical mysteries, misconceptions, conspiracy theories, hoaxes, claims of the supernatural, fringe history stuff. But Nathaniel, a very careful and conscientious historian, applies rigorous critical thinking and professional analysis on topics that many historians won't touch. I highly recommend this show. I especially liked his episodes on the Princes in the Tower mystery, regarding the nephews of Richard III and their mysterious disappearance in 1483. I thought the discovery of two skeletons in a niche of the Tower of London in 1674 closed the book on this case. It turns out it didn't, and there was a lot that I didn't know. This is just an example of how this show can challenge your thinking. There's also two newer podcasts I should mention. One is called the Celebrate Poe podcast, which deals with the life of Edgar Allan Poe. I recently recorded a guest appearance on that show, talking about Tambora and The Year Without Summer, which I've dealt with extensively on the second decade. This does intersect with the story of Poe's life. Another is the History of North America podcast, which started not long ago and aims to give a comprehensive history of the North American continent. The episodes are short and packed with well-researched material. While we're talking about podcasts, I have another one called Green Screen. This is the environmental movie podcast where my co-host Cody Clymer and I analyze and discuss popular movies involving the environment or where nature plays a significant role. We do some fun movies on the show. Our most popular episodes are The China Syndrome from 1979, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, the Disney teen comedy Holes from 2003, our Christmas special on Batman Returns, and lots more. We recently did a crossover episode with History by Hollywood, which a lot of our fans on this show also listened to. I mention it because there's going to be a crossover episode between this podcast and Green Screen. The subject of that episode will be the 2016 BBC miniseries War and Peace and how it portrays both the environment of Russia and the history of the second decade. If it all goes well, this will be episode 52 of Second Decade, so watch out for that. This is the first episode of Second Decade to be released in 2021. This is now incredibly the fifth calendar year in which an episode of this podcast has been released, almost half a decade. Granted, there have been some long lapses in that time, but I'm glad to still be around, and glad that so many of you out there have found the 18-teens as fascinating as I have. And now, Norway, Part 2. The meeting of notables at Eidsvoll Manor broke up on February 16, 1814. This is not the last we're going to see of Karsten Anker's famous estate. The notables will return there in short order. But now they began fanning out through Norway and across Europe to tick off various items on a long to-do list, which demonstrated just how long the odds were that Norway's independence would actually become an accomplished fact. 
Three days later, on February 19th, Christian Frederick, the crown prince of Denmark-Norway, arrived in Christiania, now Oslo, traditionally the capital of Norway. He'd already dispatched Anker to England to beg for British support against Sweden, whom they assumed would react badly to the independence movement. On this day, Christian Frederick declared himself regent of Norway. Of course, Norway didn't really have a king yet, and a regent is usually someone who stands in for the king, so that was a little awkward. An important point to recall from the end of the last episode is that the meaning of notables insisted that Norway's king, whoever it would be, would have to be elected, as sovereignty came from the people, and not from a royal bloodline. Having set himself up as the natural candidate for this election, once it eventually took place, Christian Frederick next started writing a lot of letters. He dispatched a missive to just about every government in Europe, but he was particularly responding to Sweden. His point was reassurance more than defiance. The Treaty of Kiel, signed in January 1814, had provided for the personal union of Norway and Sweden, but it had also settled the long-simmering war between Denmark and Great Britain, and provided a number of other diplomatic fixes, however jury-rigged, to various other political problems. In his letters, Christian Frederick stressed that he was not trying to undo all of this. It was only the granting of Norway to Sweden that he had a problem with, and it was the will of the Norwegian people, not him, that was behind the independence movement. Christian Frederick did have something of a point here. You might recall that a lot of his activity throughout January was aimed at taking the temperature of the Norwegian people and seeing if there really was popular support for independence. Many of February's events were aimed at making the point, particularly to European rulers, that this popular support was genuine. It wasn't astroturfed, as we might say today. A delegation of Swedish officials, dispatched by Jean Bernadotte, the crown prince and de facto ruler of Sweden, arrived in Christiania on February 24th. The line they took was predictable. Christian Frederick's shenanigans, they said, did constitute an abrogation of the Treaty of Kiel. What it would mean was that the Allies, we're talking about the Allies against Napoleon, particularly Great Britain, the Allies would be within their rights to wage war on Norway, which is exactly what the treaty was supposed to prevent. In simpler terms, Christian Frederick and his independence movement were going to screw everything up and backfire badly on the country he was trying to save. I have no idea whether the Swedes really expected this message was going to change anything but certainly they got a show in response. The day after it was delivered, February 25th, church bells tolled throughout Norway and congregations met in the churches all over the country, either on this day or in the days following. People took the pledge that was set down at the meeting of notables to, quote, dare life and blood for the fatherland of Norway. This was political theater, to be sure, but it did get communities all over the country on record as supporting independence. The biggest show occurred at the central church in Christiania. Christian Frederick was there, and he took the oath from the Bishop of Norway, in view of the 4,000 people who had turned out for the occasion. This is the kind of symbolic act that occurs often in revolutions. Our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor, that sort of thing. Churches rang their bells when the oaths were taken. In Christiania, it said the church bells rang for an hour. The church delegations also elected delegates to the Norwegian Constituent Assembly. This was the body that would convene again in Eidsvall to actually write the new Norwegian constitution. 
In many ways, this was a more important step, I think, than the oaths and declarations. They weren't just political theater. The centrality of churches to the Norwegian independence movement is really fascinating. A key part of revolutions is where they come from, what kinds of meeting places give rise to revolutionary movements. In the American Revolution of the 1760s and 70s, it was the taverns in the cities, particularly New York, and also the churches, like the famous Old North and Old South Church in Boston. The Russian revolutions of 1905 and 1917 came from the factories, from workers' councils. The Iranian revolution of 1979 came from the mosques and other religious meeting places. Where a revolution comes from strongly influences its character and the course it will take. While the Norwegian independence movement was not religiously based, churches were among the very few practical meeting places in the country where people came together in any sort of numbers. Note that the Lutheran faith is written into the Norwegian constitution. The king must be a Lutheran. Still, as much support as there was for Norwegian independence, and as visible as it was, not everybody was on board. Some of the Norwegian nobles thought things were moving too quickly, and that Christian Frederick was being reckless. One of these was a man named Karl Vader Jarlsberg, a lawyer and diplomat with ties to Sweden and to Britain. Jarlsberg had been active for the past several years in advancing the interests of Norway in its complicated relationships with its Scandinavian neighbors. Jarlsberg has something of a bad rap in history. Some Norwegians regard him as a traitor, a cog in the wheel that was moving inexorably toward independence. In early March 1814, Jarlsberg did see Christian Frederick and warned him to put the brakes on the process he was setting in motion. Norway's interests, Jarlsberg maintained, could be best served by a union with Sweden, and in any event, Great Britain would not back Norwegian independence as against Sweden's objection. But Jarlsberg was not opposed to Norwegian independence in principle. In fact, he was in favor of it, but he was a realist and a pragmatist about how it could best be achieved. He was, in fact, elected to the assembly that would draft the Norwegian constitution at Eidsvoll. But in early March, he went to Christian Frederick to warn him of his misgivings. Jarlsberg wasn't wrong. While Karsten Anker was on his way to London to plead for British support, Jarlsberg went to Christian Frederick and warned him that this whole thing was going to blow up in his face. But Christian Frederick was too committed now. He was going to have to roll the dice and hope that he could spin his way to some sort of victory. Incidentally, Karl Vader Jarlsberg was married to Karin Anker, a cousin of Karsten Anker. Many of the leading landowners and nobles in Norway were related to one another in ways like this. In early March, again before Karsten Anker arrived in London, the British government assured Prince Bernadotte that Britain would not support Norwegian independence. The British made moves toward reimposing the blockade of the Norwegian coast. Bernadotte in the meantime sent a mission to Copenhagen to demand that the Danish king disinherit Christian Frederick from succession to the Danish throne. That didn't really fly. The suggestion was ignored. But it looked like war was in the offing. Swedish troops massed on the border of Norway. It was pretty clear that Bernadotte planned to press the terms of the personal union between Norway and Sweden with force of arms, if necessary. In light of all of this, it seems a bit starry-eyed of Karsten Anker to press the Brits for support of Norwegian independence. The British had made a pretty solid deal for themselves with the Treaty of Kiel. In early 1814, they were eager to put a bow on affairs in Europe 
as Napoleon was nearing what they thought was his end. Anker and probably Crown Prince Christian Frederick probably also forgot or minimized that Britain's policy all along had been to support the legitimacy of states, of royal bloodlines, and established monarchies. Theirs was a fundamentally conservative view. In fact, this was part of why they hated Napoleon so much. He was an extension of the French Revolution, which illegitimately deposed the Bourbon kings. The British wanted, above all things, to turn the clock back on the French Revolution as much as possible. To them, Sweden had taken Norway legitimately. Karsten Anker got to London on March 24th. Immediately, he got the cold shoulder. He never got to see Britain's real foreign minister, only an undersecretary of foreign affairs, who told him basically, talk to the hand. No one else would see him. On April 3, 1814, Karsten Anker was arrested and confined in a debtor's prison. This is related to some old debt when Anker had been in London years before. It was probably pressed at the behest of the Swedish ambassador. Anker got out after a couple of days, but the message was pretty clear. Not long after, Anker returned to Norway empty-handed. As you recall, Christian Frederick had charged him with getting England on Norway's side. This was their best hope of making Norwegian independence stick. Now, that hope was apparently dashed. That said, although the powers of Europe were united in shunning Norway's independence bid, neither were they willing to accept anything and everything Sweden wanted to do. If he ever assumed this, Prince Bernadotte was mistaken. A major war over Norway was the last thing that the powers wanted. They were trying to put Napoleon away once and for all, and end 21 years of more or less constant warfare on the continent. Even after this was done, the British had to tamp down one last conflict that kept dogging them, the War with America, what we call the War of 1812, which ended with a peace treaty in December 1814. See episode 8 of this podcast for that. While the British weren't going to support Norway, neither were they going to send significant numbers of British forces to help Sweden fight for it. Bernadotte could count on moral, diplomatic, and economic support, and on a British naval blockade, but beyond that, he was on his own. The next phase of the drama was the meeting of the Norwegian Constituent Assembly, basically the Norwegian Constitutional Convention. It got underway in April, again at Karsten Anker's estate in Eidsvall, where the meeting of notables had occurred two months before. By the time the Constituent Assembly met on April 10, 1814, the delegates had largely split into two main factions, nascent political parties. One was essentially the Independence Party, the most radical and far-reaching of the delegates, and the ones who supported Christian Frederick's bid for independence most fully. The leader of the Independence Party was a judge called Christian Magnus Falsen. Then there was what came to be called the Union Party, or the Swedish Party. This group, while not opposed to independence, argued that the best way to achieve it was to remain in a loose union with Sweden for the time being. The Unionists were the more pragmatic ones, seeing the reality of Norway's essential alienation from the other powers of Europe, who in the absence of Bonaparte now danced to the tune coming from London. It shouldn't surprise you that Karl Vader Jarlsberg was the leader of the Unionist faction. The delegates met in a large room at Eidsvall Manor, but they were still packed in pretty tight. There weren't enough chairs for all or even most of them, so wooden benches had been hastily installed where most of the delegates sat. A window stood open, admitting fresh air and a cool breeze when agreeable. 
spring was burgeoning in Norway after a long and eventful winter. The parties clashed, Independence versus Union, Christian Magnus Falsen versus Karl Vader Jarlsberg. At issue was the plan for the drafting of a constitution. At a crucial vote on April 16th, the Independence Party and their plan for a constitution, envisioning full and immediate independence of Norway, prevailed, 78 to 33. The debates leading up to the vote were fiery and chaotic. At issue was not just what kind of constitution Norway would have, but the relationship of its people to the nobility and to the state. These were exactly the issues at the heart of the French Revolution in 1789. What was really being debated was what kind of country Norway would be. Although perhaps not the most practical result in terms of European politics, the Constituent Assembly put itself on record as supporting an idealistic view of Norwegian self-determination. In many ways, a revolution had just happened. At the end of April and through the first half of May 1814, the delegates to the Norwegian Constituent Assembly, Norway's constitutional convention, drafted and debated what they hoped would be the basic plan for their newly independent country. Because the Independence Party was ascendant and Christian Magnus Falsen was the leader of that faction, he took a strong leadership role in the constitution drafting, kind of like James Madison at the U.S. Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787. Falsen was an admirer of the French Constitution of 1791, which itself was heavily based on the theories behind the American Constitution. Falsen was an idealist, and he was prepared, even eager, for Norway to fight for its independence, as the American colonies had done in the American Revolution. It may seem strange that a devotee of Thomas Jefferson and the American Constitution got so strongly behind a document that, above all, affirmed Norway as a constitutional monarchy. You would do well to remember here that the animating idea behind Norway's revolution was not a choice between monarchy and democracy, the choice that usually gets emphasized in most retellings of the American Revolution. Instead, it was the choice between two theories of sovereignty, the traditional idea of a nation's identity emanating from a king or royal family, and the French Revolution idea of popular sovereignty, the legitimacy of government, flowing from the bottom up, not the top down. That Norway would still have a king was not inconsistent with this idea, though it might seem that way at a bird's-eye-level view glance. Karl Vader Jarlsberg and the Union Party, though they had lost the main vote on whether to seek independence or a loose union with Sweden, weren't irrelevant to the proceedings, though. Several anti-pluralist and even discriminatory ideas were afoot in the Independence Party's plans for the Constitution. For example, the Constitution envisioned a ban on Jews and Jesuits coming into Norway. Jarlsberg opposed this. He also thought there was a certain naive utopianism that ran as an undercurrent through the constitutional proceedings which he opposed. In later years, Jarlsberg would look back on the Constitutional Convention of 1814 with decidedly mixed feelings. There were a lot of compromises at the Constitutional Convention. The provision for universal conscription was controversial. Some nobles warned that people would leave the country if the drafts started taking their sons. 
Another interesting feature of the constitution was the mandate that the Norwegian monarch be of the Lutheran faith, and most specifically that he or she must always have been Lutheran. I read the portion of the constitution that contains this provision at the top of the show. This was a sneaky way of excluding Prince Bernadotte from consideration as king of Norway. He was technically Lutheran, but he converted. He was born a good French Catholic. So, like most constitutions, Norway's was a bundle of compromises. Not every faction got all they wanted, and some of the delegates, like Jarlsberg, had to do some soul-searching to decide whether or not to support it. But after several weeks of intensive work, on May 17, 1814, the Norwegian constitution was finally finished. It represented on the whole an expression of the kind of liberal humanism that was then taking root in Europe, an idea born in the Enlightenment, tested in the American and French revolutions, and almost strangled by the excesses of Napoleon. But there it was, still alive. I want to pause for a moment on this point because it connects to the central thesis of this podcast, Second Decade as a Whole. I've argued since the very first episode that the 18-teens was a particularly important, formative time in the history of the Western world. So much of what we know in our modern world was forged there, and the idea of liberal democracy, I'm using the word liberal in its historical and philosophical sense and not referring to modern politics, the idea of liberal democracy is a huge part of the legacy of this formative time. I'm not the only one who thinks so. The modern nation of Norway marks its national birthday as May 17th, the day the constitution was approved and signed by many of the key delegates. One of them, Georg Sverdup, made a speech that I quoted at the beginning of the first episode of this series. It included an oath, God save old Norway. Also on that day, the Norwegian Constituent Assembly, which had been charged at the meeting of notables with electing the Norwegian head of state, did what everyone expected them to do. They elected Crown Prince Christian Frederick, the King of Norway. He was really the only viable candidate, and that was most likely by design. Five days later, on May 22, 1814, the newly elected King of Norway, Christian Frederick, made his latest triumphal entry into Christiania. Cannons fired, church bells tolled. Behind the scenes, the Norwegian Constituent Assembly was doing its best to swing into action to get a new government online. They formed a Supreme Court and began establishing councils of state. But behind all this pomp and circumstance, there was a very troubling, undeniable fact. Norway's independence as a matter of international politics couldn't simply be conjured into existence by an act of will. There would have to be an act of power, not just an act of will, that would establish that independence if anything could. As a practical matter, it meant two things— one was gaining international recognition, but the country whose recognition mattered most was Britain. And the second was that Norwegians were going to have to tangle with Sweden's army at some point or another. There would, like in the American colonies, have to be a war of independence in some form. Although Sweden had a much bigger army and could be counted on to win any traditional military engagement, Jean Bernadotte had good reason to hesitate to embark on a large-scale military conflict with Norway. Most of his political calculations, that the Norwegian people would ultimately accept a union with Sweden, had failed by this point. If the Norwegian people started to arm, as looked likely in May and June of 1814, the prospect of a bloody guerrilla war in the mountains and fjords was a very real one. 
the war everybody had in mind was the insurgency in Spain against Napoleonic rule in 1808 and 09, which drained France to the point where Bonaparte was uniquely vulnerable to a renewed assault by his enemies. Christian Frederick obviously wanted to avoid war, but if there was going to be one, this was the kind of outcome that was about the best he could hope for. It might lead to a negotiated solution that would ensure the independence of Norway. But again, Britain would be the key to bringing that off. Without buy-in from the Brits, the whole thing was probably unworkable. British politicians weren't unmindful of what was unfolding in Scandinavia. Although they had by now several times flatly refused to entertain the radical notion of Norwegian independence, mainly because that would pull apart the Treaty of Kiel, there's some indication that the Brits were softening a bit. In early June, they sent a new diplomat, unofficially, to Christiania. This diplomat, John Philip Morier, known as Jack, was relatively young in his late 30s, but he was already a seasoned world traveler and had his fingers in a couple of different diplomatic matters. He'd been part of the British legation in Washington, D.C. just before the War of 1812 broke out, and he was involved in the complicated diplomatic mess involving American intervention in Florida. By 1814, he was back in Britain, and in early June, he arrived in Christiania. Morier's mission was important because he was considerably more sympathetic to the cause of Norwegian independence than various others who had told Norwegian emissaries, principally Karsten Anker, to talk to the hand about Norwegian independence. Trying a new tack, Christian Frederick requested British mediation of the whole Norway-Sweden question. He appears to have had some pretty frank conversations with Jack Morier. The British emissary made it clear that Britain wouldn't back down from its insistence on going through with the Norway-Sweden Union. As sympathetic as he might have been, that really was the bottom line. Christian Frederick, however, floated a new idea. What if there was a special agreement between Norway and Sweden, where the union of the two would be put off until either the dynasty in Norway, his own, or the Swedish dynasty of Jean Bernadotte died out, and then whoever was next in line to either throne would inherit both. This was kind of a screwy idea, and Christian Frederick seems to have been grasping at straws, anything to keep the dream of Norwegian independence alive. The idea wasn't very viable. Several proposals and counterproposals went back and forth. In the meantime, delegates from Britain, Prussia, Austria, and Russia made their way toward Vonersborg in Sweden to convene a mediation. The whole game of the various big European powers was to convince Christian Frederick that the independence enterprise was hopeless and that he should stand down. But it looked increasingly like war in some form was inevitable. Prince Bernadotte now had a Swedish army of 65,000 troops camped on the Norwegian-Swedish border. On June 26, the Mediation Commission convened. Their line was pretty much what Christian Frederick had been hearing for months. Do give it up, comply with the Treaty of Kiel. Notably, the commission included a different British diplomat, John Foster, who had official status and was less amenable to Norwegian independence than Jack Morier. Christian Frederick was now, sincerely, I think, looking for a way out. He proposed to the commission that he abdicate the throne, so long as the Norwegian Constituent Assembly had some degree of autonomy in crafting a solution to the crisis. He would leave, if that's what the great powers wanted, but the May Constitution had to be the basis of a settlement, one that would uphold the Union, 
but provide for significant autonomy for Norway. There's some evidence that the major powers were beginning to waver. Prussia and Austria, for example, were no longer quite so united in upholding Sweden's position. Several of the powers also weren't so hot on the idea of Prince Bernadotte, a former Napoleonic commander, having such power in Scandinavia. But supporting full independence of Norway, which meant essentially tearing up the Treaty of Kiel, was just unacceptable to them. Ultimately, the international delegation submitted a proposal to Bernadotte. It went like this. Christian Frederick would abdicate. The blockade of Norway would be lifted. Sweden would be allowed to occupy two major areas, Frederikstad and Frederiksten, but some other key posts would remain free of Swedish troops. And Norway would be allowed to make its own policy through its own parliament. Functionally, this was pretty close to Christian Frederick's proposal. Bernadotte, though, decided this was unacceptable. His position seemed to be crystallizing. He'd been screwing around for months now with this annoying idea of a Norwegian independence, and enough was enough. On July 22nd, he met with the European delegation. He expressed his outrage with the proposal. Here's what the Swedish crown would accept, and nothing less. Christian Frederick had to go, right now. Norwegian troops had to evacuate all the border forts, right now. Take it or leave it, the ball was now in Christian Frederick's court. Predictably, he rejected the ultimatum. He couldn't abdicate as a head of state without the permission of the Storting, the new Norwegian parliament, and he refused to give up the border forts. He had to know that effectively, this meant war with Sweden. This was exactly what it meant. Prince Bernadotte was now gambling that Swedish forces could win a quick war against Norway and force them to accept the Union before the weather turned bad and the armies would have to dig in for winter fighting a grueling and expensive proposition, and one that all parties were anxious to avoid. Bernadotte had numbers on his side. He had 65,000 men, most of them experienced, and they were better equipped and trained better than the 30 or so thousand Norwegian troops who were mostly militia mustered from the provinces. That conscription thing hadn't really gotten rolling yet. Norway also had a few naval vessels. There were some gunboats anchored at Valer, a group of islands between the Norwegian and Swedish coasts. This was the first target of Swedish forces. On July 26, 1814, Swedish vessels mounted a swift attack against the Norwegian gunboats at Valer. The Norwegian ships were lighter, faster, and more maneuverable. As the enemy came into view, the Norwegians set sail and slipped out of Valer. The Swedish ships gave chase but couldn't catch them. Christian Frederick's navy managed to escape without being destroyed, sailing northward into the Oslo Fjord. Full-scale war between Sweden and Norway was on. The Swedish-Norwegian War lasted only a couple of weeks. After the naval attack at Valer, the Swedes spilled across the border at Halden and made for the strategic fort of Frederiksten, occupied by Norwegian troops. One of the Swedish commanders, Eberhard von Wegesack, an experienced German-born officer, set out to engage Norwegian forces at that fort. On August 1st, a battle occurred at Tistedalen, Norway. After a pitched battle involving bayonet combat, pretty grisly in the Napoleonic era, the Norwegians were driven off with 27 killed and wounded. The Swedes took the fort. This was a fairly minor engagement. A much bigger one occurred at Lierre the next day, August 2nd. The objective was another key fort, this one at Kongsvinger, occupied by Norwegians. 
All of Sweden's military moves were planned in advance by Jean Bernadotte, who, as you remember, was a very skilled general. But he wasn't in charge at Lierre. Swedish troops were less well-equipped and low on ammunition. They were also outnumbered. The Norwegian forces, whose lines were fortified and who had fresh troops in reserve, wreaked a heavy toll on the attacking Swedes. By the end of the day, the Swedish commander broke off the attack and retreated. The Norwegian victory at the Battle of Lierre boosted morale in the Norwegian lines and among the people back home. Then, on August 4th, the key port of Fredrikstad fell under attack. Swedish shells began raining down on the Norwegian-held fortress there, both from Swedish ships and from a fort the Swedes controlled within range, Krakerøy. After holding out for less than a day, the Norwegian troops in the fort surrendered. 207 men put up their hands and streamed out of the fort. The Swedes had suffered 7 killed, 12 wounded. On that same day, the biggest battle of the war was brewing. Acting on a tip from local Norwegian farmers, a Norwegian officer, Andreas Krebs, decided to strike at a Swedish army moving toward a base at Matrand, 20 kilometers from the Swedish border, to rest, regroup, and resupply. The Swedes were again outnumbered, and it seemed like the perfect opportunity to destroy them. The fighting at Matrand was the most intense of the entire war. At one point, the Swedes, mostly out of ammunition, attacked with bayonets to try to break out of a Norwegian encirclement. This regiment, the historic Vesterbotten Regiment, managed to escape, but the battle as a whole went against the Swedes. The Norwegian commander in this battle, Andreas Samuel Krebs, was hailed as a hero. Every May 17th, a wreath is placed on his grave to commemorate his role in the Norwegian resistance. Like Lierre, Matrand was an important victory for the Norwegians, but its importance was more related to morale than to strategy. More battles followed over the next week, but the Norwegians didn't gain much from them. They lost 150 at the Battle of Rakestad on August 6th. At Longness, August 9th, after a surprise attack by Norwegians against Swedish troops, Christian Frederick was personally present at this battle, the Norwegians withdrew after an inconclusive engagement. By this point, it was clear that Norway was going to lose this war. Although they'd outnumbered Swedish forces in several individual engagements, and Swedish troops often suffered from lack of supply, the aggregate of resources heavily favored Sweden. Considering the broader picture, it was really to the long-term advantage of all the combatants to avoid a protracted conflict. A long, bloody insurgency fought in the forests and fjords of Norway, holding Swedish troops across a hostile frontier in winter conditions, was a nightmarish prospect. And what would Christian Frederick hope to gain by this anyway? The American Revolution was won in part because the British had to fight the war at the end of long, expensive supply lines that stretched across an ocean, and because America had a foreign ally, France, with at least a passable navy. Norway was just across the border from Sweden, and the British had made it clear that Norway could count on no significant foreign assistance. On August 10th, the day after the Battle of Longness, Prince Bernadotte made a peace proposal. He offered his biggest concession yet— stop the fighting and accept the personal union, but he, Bernadotte, would recognize the Norwegian constitution. This was a significant give. It meant that Sweden would treat Norway not as a province of Sweden, which is what Bernadotte had hoped from the outset, but as an autonomous region with its own rule of law. The constitution of May 17th would be kept alive. Still, Bernadotte kept up the pressure. As the negotiations got underway in the headquarters of an ironworks at Moss, Norway, 
the Swedish army moved against a key bridge at Schulberg, controlled by Norwegian troops. The battle at Schulberg Bridge was essentially Norway's last stand. The booming of artillery was audible in the negotiation room, reminding the Norwegians that they essentially had to give in. They weren't going to get better terms than what Bernadotte and the Swedes were offering. On August 14, 1814, the Norwegian negotiators gave in. The Convention of Moss was less a comprehensive treaty than a ceasefire with political ramifications. Significantly, Christian Frederick was not party to the negotiations. Bernadotte refused to recognize his legitimacy to speak for the Norwegian government. The Norwegians were represented by two lesser cabinet members, Jonas Collett and Niels Al. Bernadotte's recognition of the Norwegian constitution was the key provision. But in exchange, he got some of what he wanted. Christian Frederick had to abdicate, renounce his claim to any sort of Norwegian monarchy, and leave the country. Ostensibly, the Treaty of Kiel would remain in force, but the acceptance of the Norwegian constitution meant that Swedish sovereignty over Norway would be considerably watered down. Christian Frederick's game was finally played out. He'd lost the military gambit. Despite some brilliant fighting and a few heroic victories by Norwegian troops, there really was no hope of prosecuting the war to a successful conclusion. He'd thrown the dice on a diplomatic solution, but without Britain being on board, he had no backers in the international community. Yet he was successful in keeping the Norwegian constitution of 1814 alive. Prince Bernadotte was forced to accept it and to uphold it to the greatest extent possible. What it meant, in effect, was that Norway and Sweden would be separate countries, except with a common ruler, and Norway's foreign policy would be determined by Sweden. Ultimately, it was not about Christian Frederick becoming the king of Norway and establishing his own dynasty. It really came down to that constitution. That was the main accomplishment of the Norwegian independence movement. At first, the Norwegian people, when they heard about the Convention of Moss, weren't happy. It seemed like the military had fumbled and the politicians had betrayed them. But as disappointing as it was to still be attached to Sweden, many came to understand that the settlement was about as favorable as they were going to get. But still, Christian Frederick hung on. He fell into a depression and refused to act. The other powers were carrying on as if the Convention of Moss was a done deal. Britain lifted its blockade of the Norwegian coast. The Norwegian councils of state dealt with Sweden largely under the terms of the armistice. And Jean Bernadotte, Charles John, had in the meantime proclaimed himself the ruler of Sweden and Norway. The final diplomatic tussle broke out over a shipment of grain. Bernadotte proposed to send some food aid to the people of Norway to ease their burdens over the coming winter. The Norwegian government, however, resisted accepting it because they didn't yet want to recognize Bernadotte as the ruler of Norway until Christian Frederick had finally abdicated and the Storting had elected a new ruler, which, as you recall under the constitution, was required. Threats were issued by the Swedish military commander that occupied certain regions of Norway following the end of hostilities that the war would be renewed unless this matter was cleared up. On October 7th, the Storting met in special session. Support for the Swedish Union was increasing, especially as food and economic crises seemed likely to break out in the fall and winter if Sweden continued the pressure. Christian Frederick, seeing the writing on the wall, gave in. On October 10, 1814, he abdicated as king of Norway. The Storting quibbled about how exactly to recognize their new king, Jean Bernadotte. 
ultimately they didn't recognize him at all, at least insofar as acquiescing to his declaration that he was the king of Norway. Instead, they elected Bernadotte king of Norway, as the constitution, not Sweden's government, provided. That requirement about lifelong Lutheranism was allowed to slide a little bit. This was not technically the end of the story. There were still more negotiations to come. In the spring of 1815, the Norwegian parliament negotiated and passed an act called the Riksaten, the official plan on how Norwegian-Swedish relations were to be handled. What ultimately emerged was really only nominally what Bernadotte had intended. He was, technically, king of both Norway and Sweden. But for really in every other way, they were separate countries. It's not really accurate to say that between 1814 and 1905, there was a country of Sweden-Norway in the same way that there had previously been a country of Denmark-Norway. Norway was connected to Sweden by one tenuous string, a royal title. Norway even got to maintain their own armed forces. Later events would prove just how ephemeral the conditions were that gave rise to this awkward arrangement. As I said in Part 1, the Union of Sweden and Norway was created in response to temporal Napoleonic-era politics. Essentially, Sweden lost Finland and wanted to grab Norway as a consolation prize. But the political winds in Europe shifted fast, especially in Napoleon's final days. Indeed, as the Riksakten was being negotiated in 1815, Napoleon returned briefly for his 100-day encore engagement as France's emperor. See my series of episodes on that. But after he was defeated at Waterloo in June, Napoleonic Europe ceased to exist. The need to counterbalance France, Britain's obstinacy, foreign policy decisions based on who had a bigger navy and who could blockade whose coasts, those motivating factors dried up pretty quickly. And as the 19th century wore on, who was that the head of which dynasty started to matter less and less? Dynastic politics did play a significant role in the coming of World War I, but it was really national interest, imperialism and nationalism, that drove the causes of that conflict, more than naked squabbling over thrones, as was common in the Napoleonic era. So what, then, did the union with Sweden accomplish? Well, to be honest, not much. It's not like Sweden gained a lot by its ostensible and very thin connection to Norway. It wasn't like they got the benefit of tons of natural resources or strategic ports or some other strategic or military chess piece that would prove crucial in European affairs. Indeed, the countries of Scandinavia drifted farther away from the center of European politics into a realm of neutrality. The 1814 war with Norway was in fact the very last war that Sweden was ever involved in. It would also have been the last Norwegian war if Norway hadn't been invaded by Germany in 1940. Simply put, after 1815, these countries didn't have much to fight about, whether with each other or with their neighbors. In the end, Christian Frederick really didn't risk much. His Norwegian adventure never seriously jeopardized his royal position in the Danish dynasty. He returned to Denmark and lived the rich and privileged life of a Scandinavian prince. On December 3, 1839, Frederick VI of Denmark died, and Christian Frederick finally ascended the throne he'd been waiting for for decades. He was already 53. He reigned as King Christian VIII. Those who had watched Christian Frederick's championship of liberal democracy in Norway in 1814 would have been disappointed by his record 
as Danish king. Many in Denmark hoped he'd take after the Norwegian model and propose a constitution modeled on Norway's 1814 document. He didn't do that, and in fact repeatedly rejected demands for constitutional reform, though some historians believe that he was leaning toward constitution toward the end of his life. He died of sepsis in January 1848, before the events of that momentous year really got going. Jean Bernadotte, who would go down in history as Charles XIV John of Sweden, or Karl Johan, also had a mixed record. He was crown prince, remember, but he became the full king of Sweden and Norway in February 1818. He made important contributions to Sweden's legacy as a nation, such as instituting its preference for neutrality in European political affairs. But Bernadotte constantly clashed with the Norwegian Storting. A famous incident in the 1820s involved the Storting's refusal to grant the king funds to build a royal palace in Norway. He was forced to back down. Bernadotte collapsed from a stroke on his 81st birthday in January 1844. He died six weeks later. His reputation in Norway increased after his death. The statue celebrating him that I saw in Oslo in 2009 was put up in 1875. Karsten Anker, one of the most important midwives of the Norwegian independence movement, was dismissed as a government minister in 1815. He was close friends with Bernadotte. Anker squandered his considerable fortune. He died almost broke in 1824. His cousin, Peter Anker, served as Norway's first prime minister from 1814 to 1822. He also died in 1824. Peter Anker's son-in-law, the conservative Hermann Vedel Jarlsberg, was appointed governor general of Norway by Bernadotte in 1840. Before that, he was Norway's minister of finance and did a lot to stabilize the country's embryonic economy one of the main legacies of the 1814 constitution. Jarlsberg died in 1840, one of Norway's last nobles, although nobility wasn't totally abolished. After 1821, no new titles were created, and the last generation of nobles died out over the succeeding decades. The character in our story that had the most longevity and the most vibrant career following the independence attempt of 1814 was the Norwegian constitution itself. It continued on, robust and strong, throughout the 19th century and into the 20th. By 1905, where we first picked up this story, Norway and Sweden had grown so totally into separate countries that the thread separating them could be easily snipped. That's what happened in the referendum of 1905. It's an anticlimax because it merely formalized the arrangement that had existed long before it. Norwegians believed that they were a free and independent country beginning on the day the constitution was approved at Eidsvoll. If a people has the right to define their own destiny and their own sense of themselves and their nation, I can find no more significant statement than the fact that the Norwegians celebrate their national birthday on May 17th, a date that harks back, not to 1905 or to some origin story shrouded in the myths of medieval history, but to the second decade. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Podcasts. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. Listen to my other podcast, Green Screen, which is available on the Apple Store, Google Podcasts, all the major podcatchers. Those of you who like the environmental history aspects of this show will probably enjoy Green Screen. You can visit my website at seanmunger.com and see the online courses that are available now. 
I am back on Twitter, active again under Sean underscore Munger. I also have a YouTube channel, and it'd be great if you would subscribe there. My historical sources for this series include Experiences of War and Nationality in Denmark-Norway, 1807-1815, by Rasmus Glenthoge and Morten Nordhagen Ottesen, Palgrave Macmillan, 2014. The theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night.